This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. In recent decades, America has been waging a veritable war on fat in which not just public health authorities, but every sector of society is engaged in constant fat talk aimed at educating and badgering and ridiculing heavy people into shedding those extra pounds. We hear a lot about the dangers of fatness to the nation, but very little about the dangers of today's epidemic of fat talk to individuals and society at large. The human trauma that's caused by the war on fat is rather disturbing, and it has been virtually unexplored. So how do those who don't fit the ideal body type feel about being the object of abuse or discrimination or even revulsion? And how do people feel about being told that they're a burden on the healthcare system for having a BMI outside what's deemed, and there's very little scientific evidence to support it, healthy? And how do young people who are already prone to self-doubt about their bodies withstand the daily assault on their body type and their sense of self-worth? In this part of today's show, we're going to be answering those and a lot of other questions with Susan Greenhall, who's an anthropologist and an expert in this area. And she's going to talk us through how obesity has come to remake who we are as a nation. And she's got some great suggestions on how we might work to reverse course for the next generation. It all starts when our show continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this. From the MrTab.com radio network. All right, class. Let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all of these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil slug king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig fort for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Susan Greenhall, who's the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, I long before I picked up this book, I have thought about the way that we kind of deal with fat people in, in our culture and wondered about whether it's the next kind of smoking in a way that, that we've, we've taken a very harsh stand on smoking. You can't smoke inside. You can't smoke outside within a certain number of feet of a door. And I keep thinking, is there going to be somebody who, like a grocery store clerk, who's not going to let an overweight person buy something that has trans fats? I mean, are, are we going to get to that sort of point? Well, I think we're already there. It's so interesting that you do this analogy because the individual who first 
devised the term, offered the term war on obesity was none other than C. Everett Koop, the former Surgeon General back in the 1980s, who was so instrumental in launching and successfully carrying out the war on tobacco. But these days, the kind of talk around obesity, the talk that all of us engage in all the time, trying to get people to to eat better, to exercise more, constantly criticize and warning and nagging people. It amounts to the same kind of rules, I think, that are in place, informal rules and also increasingly organizational rules in place around smoking. And I'm guessing that because of the nature of the book, and you're talking about the human cost of America's war on fat, that you're not a big fan of that, that you don't, you don't appreciate the, the analogy between smoking and, and overweight. Well, I definitely accept that at very heavy weights, obesity poses serious health problems. For people who are on the upper levels of obesity, there are lots of health issues that need to be attended to. So I don't want to lose, lose sight of that. But what my work does is it focuses primarily on kids because this war on fat was launched, it was formally launched in around 2001. And for young people who were born from around 1990 on, their entire lives, they've heard the message that fat is bad, thin is always good, dieting is always good, and exercising is always good. And for those of us who grew up earlier, we know that there are other kinds of messages around weight. But what happened is weight is now considered, um, uh, overweight and obesity are now considered diseases. So kids have that pressure on top of them, too. Well, and there's so much pressure coming the other direction, though. I mean, there's there, there's this desire that a lot of parents have, and I think uh, other people other than parents, about wanting to have your children have positive self-esteem. And so we want to tell our kids that they're fine the way they are. And at the same time, there's this issue that you just mentioned, which is that there are some pretty serious issues having to do or serious problems that can come up with that, with being overweight. So how do we manage that between you're, you're beautiful, you're wonderful just the way you are, but you know what, you're killing yourself? Parents are really put an impossible bind on this issue. And so far, as in so many other areas, moms have been considered primarily responsible. And moms in this country, they're charged with producing perfect kids in terms of weight that's thin, fit children. And it's simply an impossible assignment um, because parents don't have anywhere near as much control over their kids' weight as people think they do. This is what I call a biomyth. One thing I'd like your listeners to, to think about, to pay more attention to, is a set of ideas that kind of circulate in popular culture, a set of ideas most of us have around weight and weight control that really are scientifically suspect, that the medical field itself doesn't expect, but yet we all continue to reproduce. The main, the main idea is the notion that every one of us can lose weight if we just diet and exercise enough. In other words, if we don't lose weight, it's our fault. Right. Another one of these ideas, I call it a biomyth, is the notion that parents can control their kids' weight. And any parent knows that that's simply not true. So in a third one is that even though we think we can control our weight, as a matter of fact, the medical field has not yet come up with any ways that help the majority of us lose weight and keep it off. 
any safe, reliable ways to keep weight off. So parents are in a bind because they want to they want to create positive self esteem for the kids, and yet. If you tell kids they're okay, then they're not going to pay enough attention to their weight. I was really intrigued. You mentioned the word control. Parents cannot control. And I know from talking to a lot of people about eating disorders, particularly on the way other end of the scale of anorexia and bulimia, that that is in some ways the way that kids can control something, that their parents are, that, you know, that's the only thing in their life they can control. And I'm wondering, do you ever consider, or does anybody ever consider, obesity to be an eating disorder as opposed to you know, something else. I'm so glad you asked that because one of the things that I begin to talk about in this book but that I've been working on more since the book came out is the fact that with this war on fat, there's so much pressure on kids to lose weight that disordered eating is completely normalized. Kids who have a few extra pounds are to engage in disordered eating, self-starvation, living only on fruit, things like that. And what my work shows, what these narratives about these young people in Southern California show is that disordered eating can easily slip into an eating disorder. And so even though obesity and eating disorders like anorexia seem like they're the opposite ends of the continuum, as a matter of fact, they're on the same continuum in the same kinds of troubles, emotional troubles, excessive pressure around weight lead to both kinds of problems. I think that the public health community and the American public need to pay a lot more attention to the connections of those. And what happened in the stories that I gathered, the young people, especially since, since eating disorders, of course they affect boys and girls, but they affect girls more than boys. So young people and their parents have really been educated about eating disorders. What they think with all these horrible images that we see if a model or another celebrity develops an eating disorder, those images are often used for edu educational purposes. So young people think, oh, that's an eating disorder. That's something horrible. I understand that. I'm never going to get that. Meantime, they're starving themselves. They're exercising three hours a week. In short, they're on their way to getting an eating disorder without even realizing it. There's an amazing overlap. Now, I want you to talk just a little bit because I, you know, most of the people that we have on the show who talk about nutrition and, and eating and weight issues are nutritionists and pediatricians. You're coming at this from a very different perspective as an anthropologist. How did, how did this work its way into your interest? Yeah, I actually, so for many years I taught a course at the University of California, Irvine, an anthropology course I called The Woman and the Body. And a few years ago, I had the idea that I could offer to really make the point about how weight is so important. I offered my students extra credit for writing an essay on diet, weight, and the BMI in everyday life. And first of all, 50% of the kids in a class of 300 wrote essays, which is quite remarkable. How often do college students want to do extra work? But what was really astonishing is what they wrote about. These were stories of happy childhoods abruptly ended by a diagnosis of overweight or obesity, a diagnosis either in a fitness test at school or through a doctor's visit, 
or there were kids whose lives just sort of slowly came apart by this growing accumulation of weight bullying. And for these kids, their lives just became this struggle to shed pounds, like a daily torment because they weren't able to lose weight. That these kinds of stories about the personal distress around being overweight and being bullied, they have not been part of the public conversation about obesity. The public conversation is all about how the obesity epidemic is harming the nation by raising health care costs and worsening health and lowering economic productivity. And this piece of the, of the story, which is how the war on fat itself is actually harming young people in many ways and harming family too, families too, that has not been part of the conversation. We're talking with Susan Greenhall, who's the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Susan Greenhall. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Susan Greenhall, who's the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. Susan, I want, I want to, I guess, go into a little bit of, of hypothetical space in, in a way and have you tell us how would things look in the world if, if we were to resolve this issue to your satisfaction? At the same time, though, making sure that, that kids are having some freedoms in their life and having some control over their life, but are also being encouraged to be healthy. So what what would we be doing as a culture? Well, for parents, I think it's really important. What this book adds is the social fact that for kids, the message about weight is 
absolutely ubiquitous. They cannot escape it. It's everywhere. It's in the media. It's at their schools. It's in their sports teams. It's in the doctor's office. So I would like to see a world in which parents back off on the weight issue. It's already so sensitive that whatever a parent can add in terms of emphasizing weight is going to be harmful rather than helpful. That's what all these stories that I collected, about 250 in all, what they show. On the other hand, it's really important to create very helpful environments for kids as kids are growing up. And so parents, of course, can do that by by modeling the kind of behavior that they would like to see their kids have. And just by having healthful food in the home and encouraging kids to, to ha- engage in healthy exercise, um, healthy, happy exercise, that would be the way to go. A third thing I'd like to urge parents is to really know the science better than people. Get, get beneath what I call the biomyth and realize that none of us has much control of our weight. In fact, weight is, is something like 60-70% inherited, and we all think we can control our weight, but basically weight's largely determined by genetics and secondly by environment, and then a lesser extent um, by, uh, by our own activities. But, you well, know, but we're can't, have can't, people, go can't people go on diets or get on a, a really a particularly vigorous exercise routine and consciously take it? make a choice? I mean, there was a guy I actually just read about, I can't remember his name now, but he lost something like 600 pounds. I mean, he was one of these people who, who looked, he couldn't move. He couldn't move at all. He was in bed and he was just taking up the entire thing. And then he had, uh, I think he had that surgery, right? He had surgery and he lost uh, 600 pounds. And then I think they were saying that he had, it sounded really horrible, but had something like a hundred pounds of skin that needed right. to be ta- they needed to be taken off, and he'd lose another hundred pounds. But I mean, so that's a conscious decision to to overcome what clearly must have been some sort of a biological issue. Absolutely, he was called the fattest man in the world, and your heart just goes out to him. I think he was much more than six hundred pounds, and he went through a very major, major surgery, bariatric surgery, and then was left, as you say, with all those skin folds. Um, so in his case, that kind of procedure seems really called for and very helpful. For the majority of us, some of us are, are born with um, sort of genetically predisposed to be rather slender, and we can gain weight by eating too much, but we can lose it pretty easily. For most people, though, most people will tend to gain weight in our environment, which is full of all sorts of fatty foods and in many ways discourages us from exercising. The fact is most people are able to lose weight if they diet and exercise, but very few people can keep it off. So what the research shows is the vast majority, something like 95% of people, put the weight back on after they lose weight. And um, the body fights weight loss. It's biologically predisposed to fight weight loss so that something like two-thirds of people who lose weight and put it back on again, they put on more than they even lost. So yes, some people are able to lose weight and keep it off, but what they need to do is go on sort of lifelong restrictive diets. And in that way, like every day watching your diet, every day eating less than you would like. 
Now, what do you do about parents who are kind of looking at their kids through rose-colored glasses, if you will? I mean, I've actually looked at some studies on this, is that overweight parents tend not to see their kids as overweight, and they tend not to encourage healthy behavior because they look at the, the kinds of freakish stories that we see on TV sometimes, and they say, well, my goodness, my kid is not like that, so my kid is not overweight, really. But how do we educate parents about what a healthy life or healthy weight is for a child? You know, I was speaking to the other day to um, a man, he's a health professional, who runs the one of the most influential obesity blogs. He writes it like four times a week. I was speaking with him the other day, and his view is that parents know it's very hard to miss the public health messages. They're everywhere. Parents have a hard time if their kids are a little chunky. Hard time accepting that emotionally because it reflects on them. It suggests that maybe they too, that is the parents, are overweight and they may have genetically um, contributed to their kids' heaviness. So I suspect that most parents know, and I also believe that badgering kids about their weight is always going to be harmful. Now, you mentioned that moms are the ones who are kind of held responsible in a way for a lot of the a lot of the weight issues, and I can I can see that. I mean, I can see that. I think my mother has always been somebody who at restaurants will order a diet drink of some kind, and, and I didn't really realize that that was an issue until I noticed my six-year-old daughter ordering a diet drink also. I thought, well, just that's just, I mean, they shouldn't have any sugar at all at that, at that age or any pretty much any other age. But, you know, what do you, what do you suggest that dads can do? Do they have a different role to play here? Well, it's very interesting. There's similar roles as moms and it's great to sort of even the um, responsibility so both dads and moms consider this an issue that they want to work on but historically the research has emphasized moms exclusively and it's fascinating very new research including some just published this month shows that dads have critically important uh, influences on kids' weight. For example, it turns out that father's weight status is more predictive of their kids than mother's is. Really? <laughs> yeah. And there's also what's called the epigenetic transmission of obesity, which is to say that conditions affecting father's health can alter the genes that he passes on to their kids. And fathers, of course, have genetic contributions, roughly 50%, um, to their kids. So in all those ways, fathers have important influence. But in terms of what dads can do, it's pretty much the same thing that moms can do which is, you know, quietly help to ensure um, a household that, that offers healthy food and encourages good exercise without making too much of a big deal if your kid gains extra weight. Because your kid's going to hear about it from the doctor, from the teacher, from the coach, everywhere. Parent doesn't also need to add his or her voice. Let's talk about a little bit what's going on on your website. You mentioned that you have interviewed at least a couple hundred people at least, and you've got all these stories, and there's quite a few of them, some, some of them really rather poignant in the book, and that you said it's available on the website. What, what's there? Right. And what is the website, first of all? The, it, right. People who are interested, if they don't want to buy the book, they can or at least first go to 
www.fattalknation.com. So I've uploaded a number of stories there so people can see the kinds of narratives that are there. And again, this wasn't interview data because people are very reluctant to talk about these issues. They're so full of shame around their weight. So it's personal stories that people wrote out themselves in their own, in their very own words. And by the way, I forgot to mention that it's not just heavy kids who suffer from all the fat talk in their lives. It's also kids normal weight, underweight, um, obese, and, and overweight. Everybody that I worked with was miserable about their bodies. So one thing they can do, they can find stories. They can also upload their own fat talk. Because hmm. one thing I want to do is encourage people to listen to the way they communicate with others. We might even say, oh, wow, you look so great. Did you lose weight? That kind of conversation is also fat talk. Right. And believe right. it or not, it can be just as damaging as, oh, my God, you should not be eating that muffin. Susan Greenhall is the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. Susan, really interesting. Thanks very much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and let's talk toys a little bit here. Summer is pretty much underway, and we're seeing a lot more toys coming in that are designed to be used outside or that are supposed to replicate some aspect of the great outdoors. This week, I want to take a look at a few that fit into one category or the other, all from one of our favorite manufacturers, Playmobil. Let's start with the summer fun Ferris wheel with lights. There's nothing like waiting in a line for an amusement park ride to remind you that this is summer. With this large set, your kids can have the joy, okay, the misery, of standing in lines, but without having to lather up with sunscreen or put on a hat. It comes with seven two-seater gondolas, a functioning Ferris wheel, a ticket office, flashing lights, and quite a few other accessories. It also comes with two adult figures and two child figures, so your little one can make someone else feel the sting of waiting in line, and then when you finally get to the front, being told that you're too short to ride. Once all the seats are full, turn the crank and you're off. The Summer Fun Ferris Wheel with Lights costs $79.99 at Playmobil.com. City Action Rescue Boat. The Coast Guard has a bit of an identity crisis. It started off as part of the Department of Treasury and then got transferred over to the Department of Transportation, and now it's under the Department of Homeland Security. They're also considered a branch of the military. But whoever they are, they do a great job of protecting our coasts and waterways. With the City Action Rescue Boat, your child can give the Coast Guard the respect they deserve, honoring them as they rescue drowning swimmers and battle pirates and take on other rescue operations. 
They can even put out fires or squirt the cat with the included plunger. This set includes the boat itself, three figures, hoses, a rescue ring, and more, and it costs $52.95, and it's for ages 4 to 10. City Action Coast Guard Station with Lighthouse. These Coast Guard heroes need to go somewhere at the end of a long, danger-filled day, right? And nothing could be better than their own station, complete with a functioning lighthouse and an observation room where the duty officers can keep a close eye on the coast and dispatch rescue crews as needed. The set comes with everything you and the kids could need to create amazing adventures together. It's got a boat, five Playmobil figures who love to wait in line for the Ferris wheel on their day off, rescue rings, a full set of scuba gear, loads of medical and safety equipment, a cable winch to haul boats out of the water. It costs $79.95, and it's aimed at kids 4 to 10. Then there's the Sports and Action Speed Glider. At some point, pretending to be outdoors, needs to give way to the real thing. And this sleek glider is the perfect way to encourage kids, and you too, to stretch those legs. Just assemble it, which will take about a minute, and you're ready for a really fun game of catch or a long-distance throwing competition. As long as the pilot is in his seat, and that's the pilot that comes with it, he really needs to be there to balance the aircraft, the glider is very easy to throw, even for young kids. And with working LED lights, there's no reason for the fun to stop when the sun goes down. Just keep right on going because you can see it in the dark. It's $26.99, and it's aimed at ages 6 to 14. You can get a lot more toy reviews and game reviews and all sorts of other reviews at parentsatplay.com. That's our website. You can drop us a line through there as well, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment, depending on which week it is. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.